0: A newly released Gallup poll out this week shows only 17% of Americans approve of the job Congress is doing. Just ahead, our January conversation with longtime ABC News correspondent and NPR contributor Cokie Roberts. She is the daughter of a congressman and a longtime D.C.-based journalist. She joins us to offer her insights into the relationship between Capitol Hill and the White House, both past and present. Koki Roberts, thank you for joining us in our North Capitol Street C-SPAN studios. You have lived through a lot in this town—the Vietnam <laughs> because War. Because I'm old, that's <laughs> what you're
1: saying. <laughs> Not at all.
0: But you lived through the Vietnam War. You've lived through Watergate. You lived through the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Through Iran-Contra. Where would you put the political climate today?
1: Oh, it's terrible. Uh, First of all, though, I have to say it's lovely to be here with you in your very elegant studios on this cold day. But um, it is a very, very bad situation. Uh, You know, not only have I lived through a lot here, I write history books. And uh, the only time that's even vaguely comparable is the time before the Civil War. And then we had a war and killed 600,000 Americans. So we don't want to repeat that. Um, So it is is a time to be concerned about because we really are not at a place where people can come together and do what's right for the country.
0: Let's talk history because you have written a book on the two-party system and specifically what Hamilton and Madison envisioned. (laughs) What did they envision and is it working today?
1: Well, they initially thought that they could live without factions, um, which of course was absurd, and they knew that even in the Constitutional Convention. But uh, by the end of the first Washington administration, the factions were well-formed, and Hamilton led one, and Madison the other. So their friendship fractured, uh, and uh, you did have gr- great deal of partisanship at that time, and regionalism, huge regionalism. And the country was so fragile and young uh, that it was in danger of falling apart. And I would argue the only reason it stayed together was the women who made the men, especially Dolly Madison, who made the men come and behave. How so? Well, she insisted on having uh, gatherings all the time, starting with when Madison became Secretary of State in 1801, She would have what came to be called her squeezes because they were so crowded, um, where everybody in this little pathetic little capital uh, would come together at her house and then at the White House once uh, Madison became president. And that's where all the political deals got done. Uh, If you didn't go, and at one point the Federalists did try to boycott because they were mad at Madison, they didn't get the information they needed to be able to make a deal. And so she understood that if you brought people together and served them some wine and some cider and some ice cream, that maybe they would uh, communicate with each other and, and get along well enough uh, to get things done and hold the country together. And that pattern, Steve, really lasted well into the late 20th century.
0: You remember after Watergate, candidates would campaign, no more backroom deals, let's open up the process. But did it work better when you had these private deals, these private negotiations, these private gatherings?
1: Well, starting with the Constitutional Convention, (laughs) if the press had been there in Philadelphia in 1787, we might not have a constitution. Um, So, sure, it's easier to get things done in the dark, uh, but it's not the best way to do things. And there's every reason that Congress should be able to operate and still be transparent.
0: One of the problems that we continue to look at today is the way that these House districts are drawn. That members of Congress are more worried about a primary versus a general election, which means there's less incentive to compromise.
1: Very much so. And keep in mind, as you well know, uh, in primaries, very few people vote, somewhere around 12 percent often and they are the true believers. And so what you have is the most liberal Democrats and the most conservative Republicans showing up to vote in primaries. So the sitting member of Congress feels strongly that if he or she compromises, that those people who show up at a primary uh, are gonna vote for the opponent, and the opponent is likely to be someone who is from the purer strain of the party.
0: Koki Roberts, how do we get back to that point? Or I guess maybe a better question is, can we?
1: I don't know if we can. Um, The only way we can really do it is if the voters insist on it. And uh, it is really up to us uh, to say, we don't like this. We don't like the way Congress is operating. And that was a huge part of Donald Trump's uh, electorate, was people saying, we want change. That's what voters were saying, loud and clear. We want change. And what frustrates people is that they keep saying that, and then they feel like they haven't gotten it uh, when Congress convenes and then slugs through a year. And so they get mad all over again, and they feel disempowered and disenfranchised. And, and I do think that the district lines have a lot to do with that, and uh, maybe getting them uh, – maybe the court cases that are coming up will, will help with that. I hope so.
0: Part of the problem that people point to is the way the president tweets, and specifically a reference to Dickie Durbin or Little Bob Corker. Why do you think he does that, and how does that uh, contribute to this current political climate?
1: Well, it certainly doesn't help it. Um, and certainly the remarks of the president about Haiti and Africa didn't help it, um, whatever they were. And um, I think that the the business of waking up every morning and seeing what he has uh, said and who he has attacked is very disturbing. And, I mean, you and I feel it as people who cover it. You know what 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 happened this morning, and uh, who who was the object of the ridicule today and that's not a a very useful thing to have a have if you want to get something done now. We have had presidents who have done things that make members of Congress furious. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt famously uh, ran an entire slate of candidates against his democratic members in nineteen thirty six the, the Purge campaign. And uh, he actually sat on a platform with Walter George of Georgia, who was a very um, high-ranking member of the Senate, and, uh, and, sa- and endorsed George's opponent sitting there on a platform with him and said, nothing personal, Walter, right? And, um, and then every single one of the people that Roosevelt opposed, with the exception of one House member, won. So now he's facing a Senate full of people that he's run candidates against. And there's a famous story of the Senate leadership meeting and somebody about some bill that Roosevelt was trying to get through. And one of the members saying, the president is his own worst enemy. And Walter George saying, not as long as I'm alive, he's not. (laughs) (laughs) So we've had presidents take on Congress before, but it doesn't work well for them.
0: As you know, C-SPAN Radio airs the LBJ tapes. Which are
1: fabulous, and I'm such a nerd. I listen to them religiously.
0: I know people are often in the car, and they're in the driveway. (laughs) They want to finish the conversation. Exactly. I want to share with you two conversations. This is from May of 1964. President Johnson, with that very distinctive voice of Everett Dirksen, Republican senator from Illinois. Let's listen.
2: Everett. Mr. President, how are you? Attorney generals were very helpful and did an excellent job, and, and right, I, I, ought to, I ought to tell you that I admire you, and I told him I'd done that for some time, well, but I'd, right, re- I'd repeat it, and I, I hope you uh, go on and let others uh, get, get get the folks together, and let's do the job. Yeah, well, we set the conferences for next Tuesday morning. All right. And as soon as those are out of the way, we'll then uh, see what we do about procedure. To get this thing on the road and buttoned up. I talked to Dick this morning. Uh, He gave me no comfort. I I said, Now, I thought we were going to vote as a Wednesday meeting uh, yesterday. But uh, I said, What are you going to do? Well, he said, You're not going to vote this week because we're going to keep the show going.
1: So this was Dick Russell, I assume, uh, the senator from Georgia. Well, the show going was what bill are we talking about here? Was this? This is a, civil rights. This is civil rights, um, and the, so um, obviously Senator Russell wanted to keep a filibuster going against the bill, but the bill did eventually pass. And, and President Johnson was very interesting. If you listen to those tapes, um, Bobby Kennedy didn't who was Attorney General. And and the two of them, in their conversations, it's so clear that their animus is just sitting on their shoulders. But um, Bobby Kennedy didn't want to have the bill signing because it was 4th of July and he thought there might be demonstrations or riots or whatever. And the president said, we absolutely have to do it now before the Republicans leave town for their convention because we have to respect the role that Everett Dirksen played in this. And so that was a moment, you know, listening to that. You understand that the two of them worked together. Now, Dick Russell was a good friend of Lyndon Johnson's, but Johnson would stare him down, quite literally, and um, and oppose him and work with the Republicans to get this very important piece of legislation through.
0: As you know, Cokie Roberts, during the tax debate, a lot of references to Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill working together on a tax bill. But Also, Everett Dirksen, a Republican senator working with a Democratic president. Another example.
1: Happened all the time. I remember Danny Rostenkowski, who was the Democratic uh, member from Chicago, who was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, saying to me that you're never more powerful as a committee chairman than when your party is in the majority in Congress and you have the other
0: party in the
1: White House, because that's when you can make the deals. If you're able to make deals, right now there's not a lot of deal making going on.
0: In terms of deal making, in terms of being the consummate politician, where would you put LBJ?
1: Oh, you know, totally at the top. I mean, he was he was fabulous at it and understood what buttons to push and and what threats to make and what carrots to hold out. Um, but he also. Was realistic and would work with people to to get to the place where they could say yes.
0: Another conversation from 1964, Cokie Roberts, and you will recognize this voice, your own dad. The debate is on Medicare. This is from September 24th.
2: Yes, Hale? I just wanted to ask you what happened in Social Security. Well, we're you gonna give it to us again. Well, I'm afraid so. What happened was that we we were within a half breath, of breath of having William Anderson, God bless him, not knowing Mills, and what a devious guy he is, says, well, now, uh, we better check on whether or not this thing is germane, whether it's subject to a point of order, and I said to myself, Christ Almighty, that's all he needs to get off the hook. And sure enough, uh, he comes back at 2.30 uh, this afternoon, and says he's talked to and that uh, it may be subject to a point of order. In the meantime, I talked with McCormick, and I knew I know we got a rule, whether it's whether it's subject to a point of order or not, And it ended up, I just told him, I said, well, uh, uh, we're just going to fight the thing out, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, The idea of you taking this course is that you think it's reprehensible to get a rule, I think it's reprehensible for you to act the way you act. And we ended up, uh, the way we ended was that uh, they are going to draft something, but uh, he's giving us all this baloney about not going to the rules committee to, the and this is this is just a this is just a way to get off to get out. That's all. Okay. I'll tell you this: I think if we don't take some part of Medicare, then we ought to abandon the whole damn bill. I don't think we ought to pass any part of it. Okay, all right. Okay. Well,
1: that that's great to listen to. That's a lot of house gobbledygook there. Dashler was the parliamentarian of the House, and. Uh, could rule on whether something uh could be brought up uh onto the floor um, if it was not uh germane the word is if it was not really part of the legislation that was coming to the floor, and so what they were saying was regardless of what the parliamentarian said, they had the votes uh to get a rule that said it was that it was okay to bring it up and that they would have the vote. But Wilbur Mills, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, was clearly blocking them, and they were having a big fight about it. Medicare was an enormous fight. Um, It was the entire AMA, the American Medical Association, opposed it, and any time you went to a doctor's office, you got leaflets opposing Medicare and talking points opposing Medicare. Um, and, of course, Harry Truman had started trying to do it back in the 1940s and took until 1965 for it to succeed. And by the time it did succeed, Wilbur Mills was on board. Um, and um, the, the, those tapes, again, are quite fabulous because the president uh, is trying to convince them that they've, they've gotten the bill out of the committee and he's trying to convince them to get it to the floor and vote on it before the Easter recess. And he says, because you know otherwise it's like a dead cat on the porch. It just starts stinking. And then he talks to each successive leader. There are a bunch of them in the room. They they take turns getting on the phone. And he says, you know, it's like that dead cat on the porch. And then he likes the analogy so much that he finally says, you know, Mr. Sam used to say that it's like a dead cat on the porch. (laughs) (laughs) He was just making it up. But he was right that to get it to the floor before the members went home and started getting grief in, in their constituencies, um, that that was the way to do it. And that was what he was so smart about. He understood all of those things.
0: And didn't we see that with the tax debate this last year?
1: Yes, where they went home at the wrong time, and they had a very hard time with it. Uh, and, and then they finally came back and, and did it. But they had a, they kept not being able to do bills last year because they would put them up, and then they'd go home and, and get unshirted grief in town meetings and all of that, and then they'd get scared. And that's what happens these days.
0: You grew up in Washington D.C., so having these public officials in your home was not uncommon.
1: Not at all. In fact, at my wedding, which was fifteen hundred people, and my mother—how many people? Fifteen hundred, and my mother cooked for the whole thing. Yes, um, both Everett Dirksen and Lyndon Johnson were at my wedding. Um, it was very common to have people of both parties uh, to your uh, I was married at home and have them at your home. I was married in the yard. The house isn't
0: that big. <laughs> how she cooked for 1500 is the subject of another, another podcast. Story. Another time. <laughs> but let's talk about your dad and how you could apply the lessons that he brought to Congress today. How did he work, for example, with Gerald Ford, who was the Republican leader at the time?
1: They were very close friends. But my father's basic philosophy was no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, so that you would constantly be making new coalitions. So you didn't want to alienate anybody. You certainly wouldn't call somebody Little Marco. Uh, you might need Marco along the line. And, um, and when, when he became leader, first whip and the majority leader, uh, Jerry Ford was also moving up in the Republican leadership. And my last interview with President Ford, um, he said to me, Cokie, I just don't understand what's going on in Washington. And that was before it's anywhere near as bad as it is now. And he said, you know, when your dad was majority leader and I was minority leader, we would get in a cab together and go downtown to some place like the press club and would say, okay, what are we going to argue about? And he said, Now it was a legitimate argument. It was a debate. We disagreed about means to an end, and it was partisan. For heaven's sakes, we were the leaders of our parties in the House of Representatives. But then we'd get back and be best friends. And when my father was lost in a, uh, an airplane in Alaska in 1972, Jerry Ford and Betty Ford were there every night uh, to see how we were doing as a family. I mean, it was a very, very close relationship.
0: Did he change during the presidency?
1: No, I don't think so. I think that he was trying very hard to to work through an awful time uh, in the presidency. My mother was the only Democrat at his swearing in, but the swearing in was, of course, very small.
0: You are in the media, and boy, has it changed over the last uh-huh. 20 years. Right? Does that contribute to this of acrimony?
1: Of course it does. Um, Now, look, again, going back to the founding, we always had papers, newspapers, that were very partisan. And, of course, in the early days, they just made stuff up, you know. Uh, Dolly Madison had unsexed her husband because she was so sexy. And uh, Thomas Jefferson had pimped her and her sisters in exchange for votes in Congress. So bad stuff, you know. But um, the uh, newspapers... Became actually in the sort of mid 20th century more responsible as they moved into monopoly papers in various cities, uh, and the three network um, news programs tried to be balanced and fair. Um, but then you had this complete uh, outcropping, and I I welcome it. I, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, but you have. Talk radio started it and then moved into cable news and now the blogosphere, uh, where you have very strong partisan views expressed. And the people who uh, watch and listen and read, those viewpoints tend to agree with them and then live in this echo chamber where they don't hear the other side.
0: Let's talk about your mom, because she also served in Congress after your father died tragically. What did she see in the House of Representatives?
1: Well, it it changed a lot in her time period. She was elected in 1973 in a special election, and really that election of 1974 changed a lot of things, because it was the Watergate babies, as they were called. Uh, A lot of Democrats came in uh, after Richard Nixon's disgrace, and— They came, many of them from districts that were not Democratic districts, and so they felt strongly that the way that they would hold their seats was to go back to the district all the time, and they got Congress to approve paying for that. Before that, Congress only approved for people to go back a couple of times a year. You got a nice uh, uh, trunk. They sent you a traveling trunk (laughs) that said U.S. House of Representatives on it. I, of course, took it to college. But the... um, but otherwise, they didn't much support your going back and forth. And these people who came in in 74 uh, got Congress to pay for them going home all the time. And that really did was the beginning of people not getting to know each other in the Congress and not having the kinds of friendships that make it easier for legislation to get passed.
0: And as you look at the ongoing debate, Congress has difficulty even passing— budget or a spending plan let alone any of the big issues whether it's infrastructure immigration or other major topics
1: trouble keeping the government open how do we get back to that well one answer and I'm not just saying this because I'm sitting here with the right chromosomes um, is to elect more women we do know that in uh, legislative bodies both state legislatures and the national legislature that women uh, are more, this is a broad statement, obviously there are lots of exceptions to it, but that they are more pragmatic and less ideological, more willing to cross the aisle, particularly on issues of importance to women, children, and families, and and more willing to just do the work to get things done rather than posturing. Uh, the women of the Senate are the last little bastion of bipartisanship, and they have a regular dinner. I accuse them of just wanting to be in a testosterone-free zone, and they admit that that's true, but they also say they get a lot done at those dinners, and they get to like each other and know each other and, and, uh, and then be able to work together. And, you know, when we did last have a government shutdown, it was a Democratic woman and a Republican woman in the Senate who basically said, oh, for God's sake. And there is a lot more of that among women. So that's one answer. I do think it would help to to redraw the lines, but I also think that we you have to have a a voter sentiment that is strongly saying we punish people for not cooperating rather than we punish people for cooperating.
0: Let me conclude where we began, and this is really an impossible question to to answer, but I'm going to ask it as somebody who has studied this so extensively. If, If Hamilton and Madison came to the House or the Senate, would they say, that's pretty much what we expected, or would they be surprised?
1: They would certainly in the House say that's pretty much what we expected. And, you know, keep in mind, they're not shooting each other, Steve, which they did then. I mean, and it wasn't just Hamilton Good who got— Good perspective. <laughs> yes, it wasn't just Hamilton who got murdered uh, over political speech. They would call, The term of art was they'd call each other out on the floor of the House and go to Bladensburg, right outside of town, where there was a dueling ground, and they'd kill each other. So we're not doing that. So I think they'd recognize the House. I think they thought the Senate was going to be a much more deliberative body and that that would be the cooling-off place, as famously Washington said, and that they would be surprised at the level of partisanship in the Senate. Uh, But they would have been surprised with Webster, Calhoun, and Clay, too.
0: Author, reporter, columnist, Cokie Roberts. Thank you very much for your time. So great
1: to be with you, Steve.
0: Thank you for listening to C SPAN's The Weekly Podcast. This episode first recorded back in January. You can find all of our episodes on the free C SPAN radio app or on our website at cspan.org.